All right, so Faye, we have a kind of exciting and cool announcement from SMFM that we're hoping to just share with our listeners. Yeah, so SMFM has asked us to let you all know about a survey that they'll be sending out to all SMFM members on Tuesday, October 18th. This survey is actually right up our alley in that it's going to ask about the types of education that you want SMFM to provide, the topics that are most important to you, and how you want those educational activities to be delivered. And Faye, they've actually got some cool incentives part of this too. Yeah, everyone who ends up completing the survey is going to be entered into a drawing to win one of 10 fabulous prizes, um, five of which are free registrations to the annual meeting, and then also five free upgrades to hotel room accommodations. So that's definitely something that uh, I'm going to be looking into because, you know, traveling all the way to San Francisco from where I'm at is not cheap. No kidding. So definitely keep your eye out for the survey coming your way via email on October 18th. And if you're not an SMFM member yet, hint, hint, all you residents out there, get signed up to be an SMFM member. And then the deadline to complete the survey and be eligible for the drawing will be November 1st. So guys, make sure you sign up to be an SMFM member. Look out for that email with the survey and complete it by November 1st. All right, guys, so it's fall again, and I know we're just a few months away from CREOGS. Nick, I'm always looking for places to find good information to make sure that my residents have good information for their exams, and also, you know, I continue to refresh my knowledge of OBGYN. Well, yeah, I mean, you're already listening to what I'll say in my humble opinion is the best podcast in OBGYN, but we also (laughs) have some great other resources available through the resident core curriculum with our friends at the OBG project. Definitely. The nice thing about the OBG project is that not only do they have the resident core, they have an OBG L&D ebook and other things like the second trimester ultrasound atlas, all of which you can access for free as a resident if you sign up. Head over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, and again, get the OBG project and all their resources free for all four years of residency. Just, again, head over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, and get signed up. All right, everybody. Welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Creogs over coffee. coffee. All right, so um, we're back kind of taking a break from some of our recent OB topics, and we're going to try to take a hard left turn, Faye, back into some of our GYN things with um, a topic that's the subject of one of the new clinical consensus documents from ACOG about menstrual suppression. Um, So what are we going to talk about today? Yeah, so today we're going to discuss varying methods of menstrual suppression and their efficacy. We're going to review the tenets of shared decision-making in counseling patients about menstrual suppression methods, and we're also going to consider common concerns in menstrual suppression by patient population, including populations like adolescents, uh, gender-diverse individuals, and persons with disabilities. As Nick said, if you want to follow along in terms of your reading, um, go to your new clinical consensus titled General Approaches to Medical Management of Menstrual Suppression. All right, Nick, so let's get this kicked off. Um, Why would we want to suppress menstruation? 
Yeah, I think, you know, probably to our average listener who's practicing women's healthcare or OBGYN, I should say, um, you know, it might be kind of a silly question. But for a lot of our patients who come see us, it actually is a serious concern. Uh, you know, kind of all of the things surrounding menstruation, notwithstanding, there's also sort of this holdover of understanding um, that a natural cycle is necessary for patient's health. And in reality, as we've talked about on the show before, Faye, it's, it's not. Mm -hmm. um, and actually kind of we've reinforced this shooting ourselves in our own foot to some degree with the design of oral contraceptive pills, right? Like we have the placebo yep. week. And so you think in the background, oh, you've got to have your period because that's what the placebo week is for. Um, but in reality, you don't need to do that. And so that's what we're going to talk about today and why patients might be looking to do that, um, particularly by these patient populations. To keep in mind as the physician though, the goal overall for menstrual suppression is ultimately to reduce menstrual flow, um, both in the amount and in the total days of flow. And then you wanna do that while finding a strategy that's based on your patient's preferences and goals and balancing any risk factors or contraindications of particular methods. Um, so I guess Faye, what method is best for doing menstrual suppression? Well, so that's a pretty tough question to answer, Nick, um, but it really depends on your patient. So we're going to go through this method-by-method method way of seeing what the data says about the amenorrhea rates for each of these methods. So we're going to break this down into, number one, those combined hormonal contraception methods, and then the progestin-only methods, which is going to include things like um, your progesterone-only pill, uh, Depo-Provera, the levonorgestrel IUDs, and then, of course, the etonorgestrel implants. So start Starting off, in terms of the combined hormonal contraception, um, the way to achieve menstrual suppression, I think uh, lots of people probably already know this, is just by skipping that placebo week. Um, and some packs are actually designed for this, right? So you may have seen advertised those 84-7 regimens where basically, you know, you take like three months uh, of active pills and then have seven days off. Um, or you might see some of those like 24-4 regimens. So you only have three days of withdrawal bleeding in the month. Um, and this can be really done indefinitely. Studies have found that these extended cycle and continuous use regimens are safe and they're also effective. Uh, but really, patients should be counseled that over time that they can get breakthrough bleeding and it's more likely to occur the longer you go without that placebo regimen to help some of that uh, withdrawal bleed to come out. And in a recent randomized controlled trial comparing OCPs to levonorgestrel IUDs for menstrual suppression, the folks in the OCP group had breakthrough bleeding um, about 50% at pill pack three, 69% at pill pack seven, and then 79% at pill pack 13. Overall, though, bleeding does tend to decrease with successive cycles as you're thinning out that uterine lining, and breakthrough happens less with those higher doses of estrogen. Basically, studies have shown that you're going to have more bleeding uh, on a 20 microgram pill compared to the 30 microgram pill. Breakthrough bleeding will also decrease with each successive cycle, as we said. Uh, so it's not uh, unreasonable to consider having monthly cycles for three to six months so that your patient doesn't get that annoying breakthrough bleeding and then transition to more extended cycles. Um, and intermittent estrogen can also be used to prevent breakthrough bleeding if that happens. The other types, of course, are things like the patch and vaginal ring, and these can also be used for menstrual suppression and have the advantage of not requiring daily medication because, as we all know, it's pretty hard to take a pill at the same time every day. 
The patch really has no difference in terms of frequency of breakthrough bleeding compared to pills, and overall, the ring is well-tolerated for extended cycles and seems to be effective in reducing or minimizing bleeding. And, you know, more recently, we're even coming out with that uh, ring that you can use for basically a whole year. All right, so Nick, those are the combined hormone contraception methods. What about those progestin-only methods? Yeah, so progestin-only methods are important to keep in mind, um, particularly because, as you'd likely remember from our prior discussions about contraception, um, estrogen is contraindicated in certain populations. Think about those patients with significant cardiovascular disease, migraine with aura, hypertension, or hypercoagulable states. Estrogen may also be undesired for a variety of reasons. So, you know, you think about your trans patients or gender-diverse patients, and then just some patients want to avoid estrogen altogether on a matter of preference. Um, so again, in keeping in mind those goals, values, and your shared decision-making conversation, you should think about these methods as well. Um, one that we probably don't think about a lot, admittedly, in menstrual suppression are progestin-only pills. And there's good reason for this. So the mini pill, kind of the norethindrone 0.35 milligram dose, um, as you likely know, has to be taken in a really tight window. Um, and then to top it off really has low rates of amenorrhea overall. So it's not a great choice for menstrual suppression. On the other hand, norethindrone acetates, the five milligram pill, um, can be used for menstrual suppression with better success compared to the mini pill. There's actually rates of amenorrhea of up to 76% at two years of use with use of norethindrone acetate. Um, but norethindrone acetate is not a contraceptive, so you can't use it for contraceptive effect. Um, this is really just for menstrual suppression, and patients need to be using an alternative form of contraception if this is chosen. If you're looking to get a pill that's a progestin only with contraception effects, you might consider the new drosperinone 4 milligram pills. So remember, drosperinone is one of those newer progestins. Um, it has historically been in certain birth control pills like Yaz, um, but now it's actually available solo and does have good contraceptive effect, um, as well as being likely more promising than the mini pill with respect for menstrual suppression. It's so new, there really is not a lot of data about it, um, so I wouldn't necessarily pick it as a first choice for the indication of menstrual suppression, but it's one that's also out there. The other shorter-acting one that I'll make mention of right now is Depo-Provera or Depo-Medroxyprogesterone acetate, so the Depo shot. Um, again, you give that shot roughly every three months, and amenorrhea rates are pretty good overall, especially with more prolonged use. Around 70% of users at two years experience amenorrhea. Unscheduled bleeding, though, is kind of a common side effect with Depo-Provera. And then the other thing that you always have to keep in mind with this medication is that there is some loss of bone mineral density and concern for weight gain that's more common with this method. Um, the loss of bone mineral density, importantly, is reversible with discontinuation, but is something you should keep in mind, um, particularly for our younger patients who are reaching their peak bone mineral density in adolescence. Faye, let me turn it back to you to talk about sort of the longer-acting progestin-only methods. Yeah, so these, of course, are the levonorgestrel IUDs and also the etonorgestrel implants. So starting off with those IUDs, we know that levonorgestrel IUDs are excellent at amenorrhea, where basically 50% of patients who use uh, levonorgestrel IUDs will have amenorrhea at one year, 60% will have it at five years, um, and the highest rates are known with the 52 milligram variety. So that's going to be like your Liletta or your Mirena, for example. 
Breakthrough bleeding can be managed if it does occur by offering a trial of things like NSAIDs. You can also try progesterone-only pills or oral contraceptive pills that have estradiol in it as well. Or you can even try doxycycline before discontinuing the IUD. It's not a good choice for patients where ovulation suppression is also desired, for example, in a patient with PCOS, because the IUD has unclear or unpredictable effects on ovulation suppression overall, and a good amount of patients are still going to ovulate with an IUD in place. The next is the etonogestral implant, uh, better known as probably the Nexplanon in the United States. And the good thing about the implant is that it can be continued for up to five years for contraception, though it is only FDA approved for three years. For menstrual suppression, however, use past three years may not be as effective. Um, the etonogestral implant, while also very good, is not necessarily as good as the levonogestral IUD at achieving that amenorrhea. About 22% of patients who use it will have amenorrhea, but breakthrough bleeding and spotting are common, especially shortly after insertion. And again, that breakthrough bleeding can be managed with o- OCPs or with norethindrone. Now, um, we're not going to talk about everything here, but the ACOG document does contain a very helpful but really big table on the different types of hormonal contraception, their relative success, advantages, disadvantages, et cetera, with menstrual suppression. So definitely it's worth keeping a bookmark on or a snapshot on of your phone to kind of take out and refresh your memory. All right. So we just went through a lot of methods, Nick, but I think, you know, the next question that our listeners probably have is, okay, so I know all of them now, but how do I go about selecting the method for my patient? Yeah, only if we could just say, voila, this is a perfect method for every patient every time. Um, but it just doesn't work that way. You always have to counsel your patient with shared decision-making in mind. And there are a couple of things that the consensus statement suggests in terms of keeping in your mind as well as talking with your patient about. We have to be aware of our own biases, first of all. There are inequities in the provision of menstrual suppression methods um, or differential diagnosis and prescription of suppression methods by race, ethnicity, physical activity level, disability. And so, again, always come into a conversation with a clean slate. You never know what your patient may exactly want. Next, we need to always share with our patients the realistic expectation of what each method might offer in the way of menstrual suppression. No method can guarantee amenorrhea. Some are better than others, and then others can be perfected with little tweaks and things like that, as we mentioned with sort of our solutions to breakthrough bleeding. You always want to take into account the patient's preferences and values, and then finally be aware of your patient's medical history and the medical eligibility criteria that might contraindicate certain methods. We'll plug, as we always have, that CDC contraception app, which is super helpful to have your MEC handy and that you can look up in the moment and in the exam room even. What we will go ahead and do, Faye, is just kind of offer some tips or some thoughts by patient population, because for certain groups of patients, there may be a thought as to things you should or shouldn't consider. Um, Let's start with probably one that's really common for residents and general practitioners to see um, in adolescents. Yeah, so for adolescents, um, we know that hormone therapies are safe. Um, And the initiation of menstrual suppression is safe any time after menarche. So I know some patients may have questions and say, oh, is the patient too young to be able to take these medications? But they are safe. And you do need to have, though, at least one menstrual period to be certain of normal pubertal development before you actually start them on these methods. Remember that a pelvic exam is not needed for routine prescription of contraception unless it's needed for actual insertion. 
So for example, if you have to put in an IUD. And IUD insertions have not been shown to be more difficult in adolescents compared to older individuals or more difficult in oliparous patients compared to paris patients. Other tenets of adolescent reproductive health care counseling should be applied. So you should definitely discuss with the patients the concerns about any side effects that are common, um, things like you know fertility, weight gain or weight loss, development, bone health, sexually transmitted infections are all things that you should be addressing with your patient um, on top of talking to them about menstrual suppression. And then use the opportunity to establish healthy alignment with the adolescent at the OBGYN office to establish a safe place for current and future care. It's really important that the first time that an adolescent comes to your office that they realize that this is a place that they can come to and not associate it as a place uh, where they don't feel safe. What about um, other populations, Nick? For example, like the transgender or gender diverse patients. Yeah, it's a great question, Faye, a great point. Um, menstrual suppression in particularly gender diverse patient populations can help to reduce feelings of gender dysphoria associated with menstruation. Testosterone is one that we actually didn't talk about earlier, but actually when it's used for gender affirming care, it is associated with amenorrhea, often within a few months of starting therapy. And then for our patients who may be adolescents, um, Gonadotropin-releasing hormone, GnRH, is also capable of pubertal blockade and suppression of menses for that gender-affirming therapy, uh, with amenorrhea rates actually nearing 100% for that method. Now, testosterone and GnRH, importantly, are not contraceptives. So if the patient is at risk of pregnancy, contraception should still be discussed and considered. GnRH also cannot be used long-term given concerns for bone density effects, as we've talked about in adolescent medicine on the show before. The last population we should probably talk about, Faye, in detail um, are patients with physical or cognitive disabilities or both. Yeah, absolutely. So in particular for patients with cognitive disability, menstruation is a significant source of anxiety for caregivers and is a common reason for a visit to uh, the pediatric gynecology clinics and even among premenarchal patients. Um, adolescents and adults with disabilities are also often assumed erroneously to be asexual and do not receive sexuality and contraceptive counseling on par with their peers. And these individuals are then at increased risk of things like sexual abuse and unintended pregnancy because we don't talk about uh, this stuff with those patients or with their caregivers. So it is our job to assist families with developmentally appropriate education and family assistance with hygiene concerns, contraception, sexually transmitted infections, and abuse prevention, just as we would with all of our patients. Menstrual suppression methods can follow the patient's needs, preferences, and values still. So consider in these patients their mobility and presence of contractures, their swallowing ability for pills, and presence of other interacting drugs such as antiepileptics. If the plan is for a long-acting reversible contraception such as an IUD and anesthesia is required, it can be considered bundled together services like dental work or pap smears, for example, to really try minimizing the patient's, the patient's exposure to anesthetics. If the patient doesn't have capacity to make independent decisions, menstrual suppression discussions should be made with the caregiver in the patient's best interest. The ethical and prudent choice is something that is reversible and something that is low risk. Let's talk a little bit about some other populations. Nick, what other populations should we consider um, that may have some challenges affecting things like hygiene or privacy? 
Yeah, the consensus statement makes an important point about these patients while not getting into a lot of detail, admittedly, about them, probably just because of one, limited amounts of study, and number two, these patients having a significant amount of um, difference between their needs and potentially their values. Um, some of the populations they bring up are patients with anticipated prolonged military deployments or patients who may be entering into war zones or have difficulty with care access for that reason, patients who are incarcerated or experiencing houselessness, um, and then also kind of just to flip to the switch a little bit, thinking about folks like elite athletes um, where menstrual suppression may be preferred in order to optimize performance or to, to minimize the effects of menstruation on performance. It's obviously hard to think about all of the potentials here, but I think it's nice to highlight this because Again, with these particular scenarios or with your own patient scenarios that may not be as extreme as one of these, we should always consider patients' access to medical services, their access to sanitary products, their access to restrooms or private areas, and help them to make that shared decision on menstrual suppression if it's desired, thinking about those things as well. All right. Um, I think the last thing we have to talk about a little bit today, Faye, is how to manage breakthrough bleeding because it is probably the most common concern with menstrual suppression. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so like anything else, I think anticipatory guidance and anticipatory counseling is really helpful to get your patients to understand um, that, you know, sometimes breakthrough bleeding can happen and it's not dangerous. And really it is going to be helpful in reducing method discontinuation rates and improve, improving overall satisfaction with their care and with that specific method. Um, so, the first thing we should do is reassure our patients that some methods that have breakthrough bleeding, that's going to decrease or cease after some time period of initial use. So kind of telling your patients that, you know, right now it may be uncomfortable, but this will go away after a period of time. The ACOG uh, consensus statement also has a great table that lists out a lot of the strategies. So it goes through some of these methods, like those estrogen-containing OCPs, oral progesterones, Depo-Provera, the implant, and then also the IUD. Um, so we're going to list that table on our website. So go ahead and take a look. It's kind of long, so we don't want to read it out for you, but I think it's going to be a great reference when you're talking to your patients. Sure. So the first thing we talked about was why think about menstrual suppression. And as an OBGYN, it might sound like a silly question, but remember for our patients, this is a serious concern. There's some lay holdover that, you know, a natural cycle is necessary for one's health. It's really not. And so correcting that misconception if patients are desiring to reduce their menstrual flow is important. The goal with menstrual suppression is to reduce menstrual flow by both amount and total days while finding a strategy that's based on their preferences and goals, balancing any risk factors. In terms of best method, we went over some of those methods like the combined hormonal contraception. We also talked about progestin-only methods. And we discussed that with combined hormone contraception, um, we can achieve menstrual suppression by skipping the placebo week. And that over time, while there can be breakthrough bleeding, breakthrough bleeding is more likely to occur if we don't use that placebo week. However, the bleeding can decrease with successive cycles. In terms of the progesterone-only methods, we talked about things like the progesterone-only pills, things like norethindrin, uh, which can be a little bit more difficult to use because of the tight window in which you have to take the medication. We did discuss that norethindrin acetate, the 5 milligram dose, can be used for menstrual suppression, but unfortunately is not used for contraception. And we also discussed drosperinone, which is a new 4 milligram progesterone-only pill on the market. 
Data for this is new, however, and so it may not be our first choice for menstrual suppression. We then discussed um, Depo-Provera, which can lead to amenorrhea rates of 68 to 71% at two years. And we also discussed the levonorgestrel IUD, which has great amenorrhea rates of 50% at one year, 60% at five years. The last thing we talked about was the etonergestrel implant, which can achieve 22% amenorrhea. We then talked about selecting a method and again, counsel your patient with shared decision-making in mind, have an open book and be aware of your own biases in terms of your prescriptions. We offered some tips though by patient population. For adolescents initially, we said that hormonal therapies are safe for adolescents. Again, remember that initiating menstrual suppression is safe anytime after the first period. Pelvic exam is not needed for the routine prescription of contraception unless you need it to place an IUD, for instance. And other tenets of adolescent reproductive health care counseling should be applied. Again, we're trying to align ourselves with the adolescent, establishing the OBGYN office as a safe place for current and future care. For gender diverse or transgender patients, again, menstrual suppression can help reduce feelings of gender dysphoria associated with menstruation. Testosterone and GnRH are actually good agents for amenorrhea on their own, but they are not contraceptives. So if your patient is at risk for pregnancy, contraception should also be discussed. Finally, specifics, we talked about patients with physical or cognitive disabilities. Again, these patients are often assumed erroneously to be asexual and don't receive sexuality and contraceptive counseling on par with their peers. If they have the ability to make decisions surrounding that, we should provide developmentally appropriate education and family assistance with hygiene concerns, contraception, STIs, abuse prevention, and consideration of menstrual suppression. Consider in patients their mobility, the presence of contractures, other medical eligibility criteria things like their use of anti-epileptic drugs or their ability to swallow pills, and consider bundling other services like dental work or pap smears alongside the placement of something like a LARC method if that's planned. The ethical and prudent choice in patients who are not able to make an independent decision for themselves about menstrual suppression is a reversible low-risk option. Finally, always consider populations that might have other challenges affecting hygiene or privacy. Some of those include folks who are experiencing war or military deployment, incarceration, houselessness, and elite athletes. Finally, we discussed some methods of managing breakthrough bleeding. We reviewed that um, one of the most uh, helpful things is anticipatory counseling to try and decrease method discontinuation rate and improve method satisfaction, as well as reassurance that breakthrough bleeding is both benign and common. We're not going to go through all of these today, but they are going to be posted on our website, so definitely go there and take a look. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating interview. You can find us online on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. And if you like the show and want to donate to us, you can go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Show notes for this episode, as well as all of our previous episodes, and that Rosh Review Question of the Week can be found on our website, CreogsOverCoffee.com. And if you want to reach out to us with any ideas for another episode, corrections for this episode, or just want to say hi, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.